0: Well, uh, before we uh, I bring you God's word. Father, we thank you for life. Life is precious. Life is a gift from you. Uh, life can also be very vulnerable. Uh, at the same time, we are reminded from James uh, chapter 4 that tells us, life is like a mist, a vapor. It only appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Uh, how long? We don't know. Father, we thank you for life that you've given to us. Help us to uh, appreciate this life we have, appreciate those who are with us, those who are around us, and never take life for granted. Uh, Help us to live for you. Pray for Ron and the family. Watch over him at this final stage of his life. Thank you that he's a believer, a believer who believes that death is not the termination of life. Uh, Death is only a transition into eternity. In order to enter eternal life, it has to go through the doorway of death on earth. So we thank you for this biblical worldview that we have. Pray for him. Bless him. Watch over him. Thank you for his life. Thank you. Bless our time now as we come to your word. Be with us as we study. May your word shape us in the way we live. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have been studying the book of James, uh, and we are now coming to James chapter 2. As I have been saying, the focus of James is authentic faith. James is concerned about one thing, and that is genuine faith. So he's writing to Christians, he's not writing to non-Christians. So of all the things about work inside James is not saying that, oh, as a Christian, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. and It's not salvation by works. James is writing to Christians, he's writing to believers, and he's frustrated that many people who claim to be believers, it doesn't reflect in their lives. And so James tried to straighten this out and say, hey, 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 this is what genuine faith looked like. This is what a person who claimed to believe in Jesus, this is what you ought to to live. So it's in the context of uh, a genuine faith, in the context of writing to believers. And so this is a situation, and this particular text, it talks about favoritism, it talks about showing partiality. And he said, We ought not to do this. And if you remember, the very final verse in chapter 1, it finished off with this, as I preached last week. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. You are to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That means to say you are adopting the worldviews of the world. For Christian, we have to adopt a Christian worldview and not the worldview of the world. For example, I just mentioned, Christian has a worldview of death. What happened when you die? Christian has a worldview on love. What love means? Christian has a worldview on many, many things. And so what the James is saying that, well, if you are Christian, then you have to adopt Christian worldview that is being informed by the Word of God. And so he finished off with that, and then he goes on to explore some example of what it means to have a Christian worldview. Because we have views, right? We all have views. But the question is, where do we get our views from? Maybe from experience, from our parents, from our employer, from, from many, many sources that influence how we view things. And so as Christian, we are saying, our views need to draw from the Scripture. If our own view conflict with the Scripture, then it is a safe bet for us Christians to adopt the Scripture view rather than our own view, if there's conflict. And so, so James is here in particularly talking about favoritism or showing partiality. So let me just read to you uh, the 13 verses first. And then I will tell you what this text does not mean before I tell you what this text means. And I'll give you six points on why uh, showing partiality, why favoritism is not permitted in the Scripture based on this text, six reasons. But let me read the text first and then I'll tell you what it doesn't mean because as much as I want to tell you what it means, it can easily be taken to mean some other thing that James has no intention on exploring. So let me just read to you this text verse: My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Has not God God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into courts? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin. Please take note, that means to say favouritism is not just wrong, in the eyes of Scripture, it's sin. You sin. And are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Just like a chain. You know, they say a chain is only as strong as the weakest thing, isn't it? If you break one chain, the whole chain is useless. It doesn't matter how strong is the rest of the chain. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We all know who Mohandas Gandhi is. Uh, When he was was a practicing Hindu, Christianity intrigued him when uh, those days India were under the British rule. And in his reading of the gospel, Gandhi was impressed by Jesus, whom Christians worshipped and followed. He wanted to know more about this Jesus that Christians refer to as Christ or the Messiah. And so one Sunday morning, Mohandas Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. Remember, those days are still ruled by the British. And upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped at the door by the ashes. And he was told he was not welcome nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church as it was for high caste Indians and white people only. He was neither high caste, nor was he white. And because of the rejection, Mahindra Gandhi turned his back on Christianity. And with this act that he experienced, Gandhi rejected the Christian faith Never again to consider the claims of Christ. He was turned off by the sin of segregation that was practiced by the church. And this is what he said. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, then I might as well remain as a Hindu. Why change? And it was due to this experience that Gandhi later declared paradoxically, He said this, I would be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. I would be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. And then he further said this, he said, I like Jesus Christ very much, but I do not like you Christians. Think of that phrase, I love Jesus Christ very much, but I really don't really like Christians. And the tragic story illustrates the sin that James writes against uh, in our text. His focus is on the sin of showing favoritism to the rich and despising the poor. Of course, in that context. But his words apply to all types of prejudice. Not only those. Prejudice, whether it is based on economic status, whether it is race, or anything else, but in particular context in James, it was uh, that they are showing favoritism to the rich and despise the poor. But let me just set in context before I give you six reasons why uh, favoritism or prejudice is is a sin and not right. I need to tell you what it doesn't mean because it can be if you react to this passage, you can swing to the other extreme. First and foremost, James doesn't mean that it is wrong to make appropriate distinction. When you come into the church, we actually have some reserved seats, if you, if you are not aware of it. We actually have reserved seats. Did you notice that? We actually reserve seats for people who are on duty. We actually have reserved seats. Uh, last rows, usually, uh, last two rows we reserve for people who are on duty. Now it's not so bad because we only have one hall. But in the past, when the hall is over the other side, we reserve last two rows for those who are on duty so that they can quietly leave this place without having to uh, disturb the rest. And so... It's not saying that it's wrong to make appropriate distinction. It would be totally wrong to condemn. Say we reserve some seat for older people. Some older people at the first service they love to sit at the corner because they are on wheelchair. I mean, wheelchair wheelers, and it's it's easier for them to move around. It's very hard for them to walk all the way to the middle. Uh, how do you do that? So. It, we don't have to push things to extreme and say, oh, the Bible says like that, and therefore we should not have distinction. It's silly. It does pure silly, you know, it's trying to use Scripture to argue for, for unnecessary things that is not intended in a sense. So, so it is not talking about those kind of uh, showing appropriate distinction because those are motivated by love. And what James is against is that the distinction doesn't come from bias or shallow prejudice, Uh, Those things come from a manifestation of love. Just like when you go on a train, there are seats reserved, right? You can say, oh, everybody is equal whatever, we don't have seats. You can't do that. Uh, So James is not talking about no distinction. Secondly, James doesn't mean that we shouldn't show due respect or honour to people of certain status or, or in our community, say we have a launch of certain things, we honour certain people because they have contributed in the past, maybe it something. It is not to say we shouldn't do that. We are not kind of like radical egalitarianism, you know, uh, that wipes out all social distinctions in the sense. It's appropriate to honour leaders. If uh, we have a prime minister that comes, we should probably honour people in that sense. Uh that's not James' point. And James is not saying that we should ignore the rich as if they had no business being at the corporate assembly of God's people because the text seems to imply that wealth does not disqualify someone from attending church during the course of the week. He's not saying that Christianity is only for the poor. You know, there are some Christian movement seems to go too far down, seems to discriminate the rich rather than than, than anything else. And some uh, of our society segment of the community seems to, and even in South America, they it, it developed this thing called liberation theology, uh, which uh, God seems to favor the poor and despise the rich because the rich are being seen as an oppressor in a sense. And so so James is not talking about that. It's just this instant, it is that is situation where they favor the rich. So... James is trying to say we should not discriminate against the poor in favor of the rich in that context. James wants us to treat all people alike without any consideration of social, economic factors or whatsoever. In other words, he's not saying that showing kindness and courtesy to rich people is wrong. It is wrong only when we do it to the exclusion and detriment of the poor. We must show both equal consideration and courtesy. James is also James is denouncing the sinful snobbery in which we cater to the wealthy. He could just as easily have denounced that condescending humility in which we falsely pity the poor. There is no inherent virtue in poverty. What's so good about being poor? Nor is there any inherent vice in wealth so we're going to learn to balance it. Do not use this passage to despise those who have in that sense. So this is not what James is talking about. Because spiritually, there are many combinations. You can be physically poor and yet spiritually rich, right? You don't have the material things, but spiritually, you can be very rich. You can also be physically poor and spiritually poor, yes? You can also be spiritually poor rich, but no, physically rich, but spiritually poor. There are many people who are physically, they are rich, but spiritually, they are poor, they don't have God. And also, you can both have physically rich and spiritually rich. So there is no inherent virtue in poverty, nor is there any inherent vice in wealth, a little bit of wealth is good, can help with building project too. You know, uh, it's about, I'll, I'll preach a sermon sometime later in, in chapter 5, later part, when wealth become a sin. Wealth can become a sin. And how James tells us about that sometime later on. And how in... in uh, Holding well. and also James is not denouncing all forms of discrimination. I mean, maybe discrimination is not a good word to you. Uh, James is not kind of uh, uh, against morally uh, uh, discerning. You know, we we have to, if you, for example, want to employ a staff to you uh, know in a, a childcare center or something like that, you have to have a bit of discerning, you know. Uh, you, so in that sense. Quote, unquote, you may be discriminating in a sense. But it's just only wise to take into consideration something. He is only saying you should not discriminate people just based on their external factors that you don't know. You cannot. Uh, that is wrong. Non-moral grounds. You, you should not show favoritism according to race, wealth, social rank, and popularity. That's all. And James is also... Not saying that you cannot wear jewels and ring and all that, you know. And some uh, um, Asian churches or what, you know, uh, uh, India in particular, you are not allowed, all Christians are not allowed to wear any jewellery, you know, uh, in that sense. Um, but James is not saying that, so so don't have to extend the text here, saying, oh, look at this! We're wearing rings and all that, you know." This is just only using it as an example of that. So please do wear your ring and jewelry and and all that uh, and all that. Don't don't have to deliberately uh, don't do that because you're coming to church or whatever. You can do that when you are traveling. Maybe it's not safe. You, in that sense, you know. But uh, not the extension of application of this text in the sense. So those are the things we need to set in context so that we can uh, come to this text in the proper light in interpreting what James means. What does he mean then by uh, personal favoritism or partiality? Uh, What does he mean by partiality? Well, he means this, okay? James simply means that a self-serving discrimination that is based upon shallow external is wrong. We should not show any favor Partiality that is based on external. No, it's wrong. Do you know that there are certain things about people that can be regarded as character-neutral attributes? Character-neutral attributes. I'm referring to things about individuals who do not relate to the character or value of a person. For example, if I behave rudely, I manifest a hateful attitude, I insult people, I take advantage of people, I lie to people. This relates to my character, right? That is me as a person, and my character is like that, if I'm rude, mean, and all that. But there are things which what I call character neutral attributes. Neutral, meaning to say, for example... Uh, a person's skin color, their ethnic background, their level of education, their income, their health, their age, their gender, their popularity. This is what I call character neutral. It's nothing to do with your inner moral kind of virtue or of character, it's external things. These are things that actually you no, no control on. You're born a Chinese, you're born a Chinese. I mean, oh, what? I mean, it's terrible to discriminate against someone who has no choice. They're born as as some race, you know. They're born like that. So in that sense, we should not discriminate against people of those character neutral things that James here is against, all right? Not about discernment, about certain things that you you have to employ judgment and all that is is well and necessary to do, but all those external things. And here James goes on in these 13 verses, he gives us six reasons. He gives us six reasons why we must not show partiality on those character-neutral things, all right? Those external things, six reasons. The first reason in verse 1 is this. He said, because it is inconsistent with faith in Christ. It is inconsistent with faith in Christ, He said, you cannot call yourself a Christian and yet show partiality based on those external things. You cannot. He said, it's just not consistent with a person who believes in Christ. He gives a reason here. He said, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I can go on and explain to you the word glorious. I think James deliberately put in the word glorious. Because glorious, if you put away the word glory and glorious, you straight away think of Philippians chapter 2 about Christ coming to us. Remember the beautiful story about Christ descending? He came as a man. And and then not just only a man, he came to die on the cross. Not just only to die on the cross, but die at the very worst form of death on the cross. Remember the descending? Like God coming to us from a penthouse, right down, go down, 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 down to the basement. From living in the penthouse, coming down. So James used the language of death. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. If I may paraphrase this verse 1, my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who so lowered himself in poverty and humility. Don't show favoritism to the rich. Don't. Don't. It's not compatible with your faith, he's saying. Because Jesus... Is not that he came down to that level. And then Paul later on will say uh, that though Jesus was rich and yet for your sake, he became what? Poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. So, what James is saying, when you consider what Jesus did and what Jesus taught and how Jesus behaved, there is no justification for favoritism. It is not compatible with faith in Jesus. No comparison. It is inconsistent because Jesus came down. He's humble. It's not compatible with your faith. So that is the first reason that you ought not to show Partiality, because it is inconsistent with your faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, because it makes us judges with evil thoughts. It makes us judges with evil thoughts. That is in verse 4. Verse 2 and 3, he goes on to give the example about the rich and poor coming, and then uh, they show uh, uh, favoritism to the Rich, And then he went on to the conclusion of that two example. He said, have you, if you really show favoritism to the rich in that context, or for us, application for all other things, if you really showed, show that, have you not discriminated among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So the kind of favoritism James described doesn't come from good thoughts. It comes from your mind. Is evil thought. The treatment we give to people depends upon our thoughts about them. This kind of insulting, dishonoring treatment stems from wrong, from our thoughts. Therefore, our thoughts are important, what we put into our mind. And James is saying that, well, when you do that, you are evil thoughts in your mind to do that. And then he basically, by you and I, he's just saying that. We are not judges, God is. Who do we think we are passing judgment on the worth or value of another human being based on some external factor, be it well-ranked popularity or skin color? Who are we? You and I, we must never kind of usurp the role and right that belongs only to God by elevating ourselves to such a lofty position. We have no right to envision ourselves sitting behind a bench, passing judgment on who is of greater value and who is of lesser value, who who is deserving of our attention and who is not. And to do so, James said, is to be guilty of evil thoughts. And so, in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, which I don't have it on the PowerPoint, uh, Paul says the same things, isn't it? He said, fill your mind with good things. Fill your mind. Say, finally, my brother, what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what do you do? Think about such things. Think about such things because our mind influences our behavior. Our mind influences so second reason, uh, James say, "Wow, well, you should not actually show partiality based on those neutral attributes, character neutral attribute, external, is because it makes you judges with evil thoughts. It judges with evil thoughts. Third reason, because God makes no such distinctions. In verse 5, It tells us, James goes on to say, well, you shouldn't. Why? Because God makes no such distinctions. God is not a respecter of persons. When we engage in the kind of behavior James describes, we are not acting as God's children. We have a higher moral law. He said, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? He said, why are you discriminating against them when God also has chosen them? God makes no distinction on those external things. He shows sure no partiality. God doesn't care about age." No wonder he blessed Abraham. He doesn't care about experience. No wonder he chose David, isn't it? He doesn't care about gender. No wonder he lifted Esther or Rahab. He doesn't care about your past. No wonder he called Paul, who is a terrible past. He doesn't care about your physical appearance. No wonder he chose Zacchaeus, who is very short. He doesn't care about fluency in speech. No wonder he chose Moses who stutter. Can okay, you imagine hearing someone who started to preach? Uh, how do you do that? He doesn't care about your career. No wonder he chose Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute. So God sure knows, Pastor. He makes no distinction. All can be saved in Christ. All of them. God show no partiality. And as a result, James is saying, if God has not cho- show partially, has not God chosen those people, so why are you making distinction when God doesn't? The fifth, fourth reason, because it dishonors the poor. Of course, in this context, it's dishonor the poor, but uh, as we extend the application, it could be other areas that we talk about those character neutral things that people discriminate uh, against. Uh, Why should we dishonor someone simply or merely because of their income or their financial status? Prejudice and partiality dishonor God because it dishonors the poor. It says it, but you have dishonored the poor by showing partiality to the rich. In this instance... uh, Therefore, you have dishonored those people that God called them value. God has value on them, and and who are you to discriminate against them? Usually, this kind of thing comes home to us when emotionally we are connected. Imagine. Uh, Imagine one of your child or one of your children, for example, uh, being discriminated on something else. It will affect you as a mother or a father because it's suddenly, emotionally, you're connected with the situation. And so uh, here, God is also offended in the sense, well, I created all this, you know, why, why do you show favor to, to in this instance, the rich? And, and, as, and as such, by doing that, you're dishonoring the poor whom I have created as equal, who is valuable to me. And because of that, you should not uh, show partiality, as it dishonor the very person that God loves and God created in this image. Fifthly, because it makes no sense. Why uh, showing partiality and uh, discrimination? is wrong or sin is because it makes no sense. In this instant. it really makes no sense. James is saying, you have dishonoured the poor. Why are you showing this extra favour to the rich anyway? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? They are the very people that are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you to court? Are they not the ones that are taking advantage of you? So why are you kowtowing to them in that sense? It makes no sense, James is saying. Even put aside the spiritual reason, just purely based on the data, it just makes no sense that you are showing favoritism to the very people that abuse you. Of course, James is not saying that you should not, you know, James is basically saying that you should treat all equal. don't have to place extra favor on these people. So it makes no sense in a sense. Uh, And of course, we know people with wealth and status, you tend to have extra privileges and doubt upon you and all that. And sometimes we can buy into that kind of view as well as believers. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a... That's an amazing thing to remind us uh, that he said, The greatest evil is not done in those sordid dens of crime that Charles Dickens loved to paint. It is conceived and moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warm, and well-lighted office by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks, who do not need to raise their voices. So, we don't have to think that bad people are those who go to 7 Eleven and steal a cup of uh, cigarette and all that kind of thing. There are some worse crook than that. And some crook are, are up there, you don't know one, you know? So, it's just to try to equalize it in the sense, you know, uh, uh, that we don't think that uh, the crooks belong to those lower income class ones. Or C.S. Lewis say, "Education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make man a more clever devil. If your heart is not right, the smarter you are, the evil you, you the amount of evil that you can inflict on the world is greater. If your heart is not right, your heart is not because you're smarter." As D.R. Moody, I shared this story. If D. R. Moody used to uh, uh, those are those 19th century when they were building railway tracks and all that. And so they were thinking how to prevent these railway track workers from stealing boats and nuts and screws and hammer and all that home. And how do we prevent this? And one, one smart person said, send them for education. It will fix them up. And D.R. Moody said, if you send them for education, they come back, they might steal your railway track away. It's only to say that education not necessarily make you be become more moral in the sense, you know. Uh, it actually, if your heart is not right, it makes you out to be a more clever or cleverer devil. And so, uh, we've got to see things in those kind of proper perspective and don't have to uh, endow greater on those external uh, factors, you know, that take into uh, um, uh, that. So, so, so in this instance, it's saying that it makes no sense. It, it makes no sense at all that you are doing that. The final reason that I want to give to you why James said that showing partiality is wrong or sin is because it violates the law of love. It violates the law of love. If you were to read this passage straight on. Verse 8 onward, it seems a little bit disjointed with verse 1 to 7. It seems like it doesn't flow with, uh, with verses 1 to 7. It seems like another topic already. But it's not really the case. If you really study it in context, it, 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 may, it may give the impression that the people that James is saying that you shouldn't, this Christian, they say, well, the Bible did say, love your neighbors. So what's wrong with showing? loving our neighbors to the rich when they come to church. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible said, love your neighbors. Uh, and in that context... James said, No, 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 no. You know, some, sometimes I'm a preacher, I know. When you want to make an absolute statement, there'll be some people who come up and, and tell me, say, Wow, well, didn't the scripture say this? And in some way to make your statement that you want to make it absolute seems not that absolute in the sense. Uh, it's just that some people say, Wow, it's God is so powerful. Can God create a stone so big that he can't move? How do you answer such question? Can God create a stone so big he can't move? Whichever answer you say is wrong, you say yes means he can't move. If you say no means he can't create. Uh, you know, it's just like asking someone: Have you stopped beating your wife? You know, how do you answer that that question? Uh, you say yes, I've stopped beating my wife means you have beaten your wife. If you say uh, no means you're still beating your wife. You know, <laughs> you know that, uh, you, you can't win one. You know, this kind of uh, uh, questions. You know. Uh, so, 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 some people will quote Scripture to justify certain things as it's right, even though it's wrong. They use this thing, wow, the Bible says love your neighbors, right? So, we should love neighbor. Which one is our neighbor? We should show, you know, special attention. James said, no. James is going to answer head on and say this. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you, you are right. All right. You are right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then he went on to give the example. He said, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For example, if I drive along Thomson Road. Thompson Road, I think, is 60 zone. Am I right? 60 zone. If I drive 70, uh, police stop me and find me. I can't give reason. You know, yesterday I drive 60. <laughs> I've always driven 60, you know. You know, I pay my tax. I, I've never owed government any money. You know, I pay my bill. I, I'm I'm okay. You can't use other things that you do right to compensate this thing that you do wrong, in a sense. In the eyes of God, you still break the law. And so, uh, James is saying, well, you, you, you can't, you can say love, you know, that's cool, but you show sure for that's wrong. You know, there's no, you can't use that to cover up your sin in a sense. Therefore, he further on explained by saying, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. So you can't use one to justify, yes, in the law of court, maybe you can have some character reference to say, he's generally a good person, he's not a lawbreaker. Maybe you can reduce your sentence, but they can't completely eliminate you from your wrong in that sense. So, so the people that tried to use love your neighbor as a way to justify why they were showing extra favor to the rich, which James in this situation said, no, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful Mercy triumphs over judgment. Just as much as mercy triumphs over judgment, so love should triumph over partiality. Just think about a sentence. Imagine God used your standard to judge you next time. Do you, can you imagine God used your own standard to judge you? If you use your standard in the way you judge people, what if God used your own standard to judge you? And therefore he said, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So if you are not a merciful person, uh, then the same token of the way you, your yard stake in judging people will be accorded to you as well. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Think about that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law of love. Because it's against the law. The law of love. Because Christian has higher moral law. And that is why. In 1 Corinthians, you're talking about Christians suing each other in in court and all that. James, uh, Paul says further, Paul says, why do you Christians sue each other? Why do you subject yourself to the law of this world which should be inferior to the law of the Scripture? Your your standard should be higher. And therefore, suing each other as Christians is is ridiculous in the sense in the scripture. You are subjecting yourself to a lower law. But Christian moral laws and virtues should be higher than those things. And for you to reduce until such a low standard means you are far cry from from what it's supposed to be in a sense. It violates the law of love if we show partiality sense. So those are the six reasons. Of course, let me just say this, of course it can, you know, in the Australian society that we live in, uh, the government and society at large, we have a lot of this kind of uh, anti-discrimination law and all this kind of thing, uh, as what we talk about, to to prevent this kind of things from happening. But unfortunately, it is all based on law that enforce your your behavior or you can't do that because there's a law. If you, if you don't, then you break. Christians shouldn't be like that. Christian laws are supersede this kind of external law. Christian is because you believe in Jesus, because you are saved, because you are all sinners saved by God's grace, and we understand who Jesus is. Therefore, it transforms our inner life, and therefore we act it out based on the fact of our transformed life, not based on the external law that forced us not to discriminate, and therefore we cannot discriminate. It's because of who you are that should flow out of it rather than external law that's enforcing your behaviour, in a sense. It must be who you are that you've been transformed. So our law is to supersede all this. Even without all this, this law that the government put in place, Christians should act on those things anyway because it's who you are. So way before all this anti-discrimination law comes into place, Christians already have that in the Bible. A few thousand years, it's already on oh no, us. It's only now that it start to catch up, in a sense. Uh, um, Christians should not uh, discriminate in that sense. Yes, as uh, Scott Morrison recently at the uh, uh, Hillsong Conference, he did say, isn't it? You can only do so much. You can only legislate so much. Uh, you cannot actually legislate holiness. You cannot. You cannot legislate holiness. You can't. It is just those, those external religions, uh, they do that. But for Christianity, you cannot legislate holiness. It has to come from your heart. It has to come from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that God loves you, you're redeemed, you're transformed. And in the process, you change. It is from the inside of you. And it's not the external law that's enforcing your behaviour. In a sense. yes, it can be subject to abuse. There are lousy employees who are who are lazy, who are no good, they have been sacked by the company, but they can use the race or their culture or whatever as an excuse that you sacked me because of my race or whatever. But in reality, it's your uh, work ethics. They can use that to abuse it. It can also be the other way around. The employer wants to get rid of this worker Uh purely because of their external, neutral virtues and all that, uh, showing partiality, but use the reason of they are not performing. So it can can be subject to abuse from all anger in the sense. But Christians shouldn't be worried about all these things because it is us that we are like that. Whether there's law or no law that's enforcing us, it, it, it has to be who we are, that we see people as as created in the image of God. The Bible teaches us four things that we must never forget, that all people are equally created in God's image. All people are loved by God. All people are stained by sin. And all people are able to be redeemed. And those four facts form the basis of the doctrine of Christian equality. That we, all people, regardless of their background, are significant, loved, fallen, and... Redeemable. Let me close with this. In, uh, in my Bible college years, when I was doing my postgraduate study, I did a subject on church growth. Basically, church growth theory, they have this subject, they teach you how to grow a church. How do you grow, if you have a church of 50, how do you grow to uh, 500? If you have a church of 500, how do you grow the church to 5,000? And all these experts will come and give this theory and all that. It's just almost like a business, you know. If you run a business, how you make your business profitable. You know, Every year you think of ways to make your generate business profitable. And so sometimes they employ the very same principle in growing a business into growing a church. So if this business grow based on this principle, and then I adopt this principle into the church, the church should grow the same. Uh, and, and, and this is what church growth theory is about. you know, make sure you have enough car park. Make sure you don't preach very offensive sermons so that people will come back. Make sure your song is not too loud and all these kind of things to suit into people's needs and all that. But one of the things that troubled me most is one point. They say, well, which is very popular now, uh, which I think is exactly what James 2 is talking about, is this thing called H-U-P. Uh, Church growth theory called H-U-P. Homogeneous unit principle. Homogeneous unit principle. Basically, it's saying this, okay? Homogeneous unit principle basically says if you want to grow a church, get the same type of people. Get the same type of people. So if this is an Asian church, make sure Asians attend this church. Okay? Okay? if you are reaching out to 20s, uh, make sure the church composition is 20s. Don't put an 80-year-old there, man there. You know? E- homogeneous you need, The way to grow is to reduce having people to cross unnecessary barriers. So if a youth church, then all young people there, then you attract all the young people, it will grow. You don't mix it, you know. One, the minute you mix it, people have to adjust, people got to cross culture, they have to cross age group barriers and all that. You reduce all this homogeneous unit principle. Keep it as the, the same type. And when you keep the same type, you draw the same type. You got why? Well, where is H-P coming? H-U-P is coming. Because you're reducing people having to make do. People have to compromise. People have to you know, people get angry, this and that. You reduce all these this barriers so that people enjoy that same time, all on the same page, in a sense. I was very troubled by that when I, when I learned that principle. I say, when I uh, start a church, when I start being a pastor, I will make sure I go against that principle, I say. I say I will make sure I go against that kind of principle because it is so different from what the Scripture says. The church should be a diverse group of people, racially, socially, and economically. A church full of localites does not impress the world. The world is impressed when a very diverse group can be seen living together in unity, living together together in unity and i think such kind of approach a hup kind of approach violate what james is saying here and they ignore the glory of the New Testament church in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave-free men, but Christ is all and in all. The makeup of the local church should baffle the world. The world should not be able to explain how people of different races, economic and social levels and age groups can come together in love and harmony and to divide up the church along such lines obliterates the glory of God and His salvation. So our church, we hope, we love to have different types of people, all races, all age group. And that reflects what the Scripture ought to be. I have said enough and it's time to close. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for reminding us. that we should not show partiality. We want to be like Christ. We want to follow Christ. Forgive us. Many times we show partiality on those external factors. And you tell us that it is a sin to do that. Help us, this church, to embrace all kinds of people and never put judgment on their external because they are all created in the image of God. All are sinners, including us. The word is all, not them. All. And can be saved. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I want to teach you a closing song. We don't have musicians. I taught you this song about three years ago. And uh, I want to teach, some of you may remember this song, I I I want to teach you and close off this song. Uh, can you flash up the words for me, uh, Jason? The title of the song is got To Be Like Jesus. I think if you remember, uh, and remember we do signs as well, about three years ago. Let me just teach you uh, the sign first, and then we, uh, later on I'll invite you to stand and sing in a cappella without compliment. To close off this song, which I think is quite appropriate, okay? To be like Jesus. The title of the song is called "To Be Like Jesus." Let me teach you how to do sign. Get two T. Can you follow me? T, two, to, B, B. Clench your fist. To be like. Point to your nose. Like Jesus on the cross, not huh? nails. Okay. To be like Jesus. Twice. All is this. All. I is last finger. All I ask to be like Him. Okay? Let me repeat again. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask to be like Him. Next one. All through life journey, eh? like a road. eh? All through life journey. From earth, you clap three times. From earth to glory. So clap three times, okay? Doesn't matter right over left or left or right. From earth to glory. All I ask to be like Him. Okay? Go back to the first part again. I'll, I'll, I'll sing for you and uh, join me if you know this song. And then after I'll ask you to follow. Uh, do the sign with me, okay? To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. Or I ask to be like Him. All through life, journey from of to glory, all I ask to be like him one more time, okay? To be like Jesus to be like Jesus or I ask to be like him or through life journey from earth to glory or Stand and let's do it properly. Let's start. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, or I ask to be like Him, or through Journey from up to glory, or I ask to be like him, dear Jesus. This is our prayer to you that is to be like Jesus. Thank you for giving us an example of what it means to show no partiality by coming to us in a humble way and by accepting all sinners because every sin has a past and every sinner has a future. We thank you. We ask that you will bless us as we leave this place. May uh, may this word remain in our hearts. May we be wise uh, to love those you have entrusted to us. Thank you, Lord. As we eat, as we fellowship, uh, bless our time together. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional love and His unfailing love of God and the empowering presence, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. I need you to help to,